Let me pray for us as we come to God's Word. Let me pray. Loving Father, we thank you that you're a speaking God, and that as we open your Word together this morning, we can do so with confidence that you speak through your Word. And uh, we pray that you do that this morning. We pray that you might help us to see wonderful things about the Lord Jesus, about what it means to live for him and for his glory. Uh, We pray that you might give us both joy and confidence in our Christian lives as we read and understand these words together. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're in uh, Romans chapter 8 for the next four weeks, including next Sunday, which is a, a baptism service. We've got five people getting baptized next Sunday morning here, so... Uh, we'll be looking at Romans 8 uh, with them as well. Now, I want to start this morning by asking you to notice a rather bizarre distinction between, here we go, wait for it, bodybuilding and growing a plant. Now, I grant you, you're probably thinking, Steve, there are lots of differences between bodybuilding and growing a plant. Uh, Why we'd bother to put them alongside each other? But do bear with me for a moment, because I think if you get this, it will be super helpful for your understanding of Romans chapter 8. So let's start with uh, bodybuilding. You might be able to tell that this is my specialist subject. Uh, John Critchley and I consulted long and hard about bodybuilding this morning, so I'm, I'm sure that I've got this right. Listen, I think as far as I understand it, the basic principle of bodybuilding is that you you eat protein and you push weights, and that means that you build muscle. All the teenage boys are looking at each other and laughing. Is that, have I got that? Is that vaguely right? Yeah, eat protein, push weight, build muscle. You see, essentially, the, the point of bodybuilding is that the muscle is already there, okay? It's just that it is weak and pathetic. In some of us, it's even weaker and more pathetic than average. And it needs building up. Now, that's bodybuilding. Growing a plant, though, is fundamentally different from that in so many ways. But for our purposes this morning, I want you to notice that growing a plant is different to bodybuilding in one crucial way. You see, growing a plant isn't about developing something that's already in you but needs a bit of attention. Rather, growing a plant is about watering, feeding, tending something which has a life of its own already separate to us, if we like, independent from us, and it just needs to be given the right conditions to grow and blossom and bloom, to do what it's designed to do and what it wants to do. Uh, Maybe you could put it this way. It's like the distinction between uh, self-improvement and tending, yeah? Uh, One works with what it's got, self-improvement, The other is focused on something separate or new, encouraging it to to flourish and bloom. Now, if if it's not been weird enough already, let me me make it a little bit more weird, okay? Now you're all wondering what you're doing. I know it's going crazy, isn't it, right? You know, fire me if you like. I'm leaving in three weeks' time. Anyway... I want you to, to bet, if you had to bet a thousand pounds, a thousand pounds on either me getting ripped, right? Or that plant growing, where are you going to put your thousand pounds? Where are you going to put your thousand pounds? Put your hands up if you're going to put your thousand pounds on me getting ripped. No. Who's going to put their thousand pounds on the plant growing? Yes, there you go, see? 
That is very sensible. Why is it very sensible? Well, because plants grow. It's what they do. I am unlikely to get ripped. I've shown no inclination to do so for nearly 30 years, or however long it is that I've been an adult. Plants grow. It's what they do. Now, listen, this is the key point for us this morning. Romans chapter 8, verses 1 to 11, wants to tell you that living the Christian life is more like growing a plant than it is like getting ripped. And it wants to tell you that not because it wants to give you some tips on how to grow a plant, but because it wants you to be really confident and sure this morning that if you're a Christian, you're trusting in Christ, you will grow and flourish and bloom. He'll come in chapter 12 to give you some uh, indications on what it looks like and how to grow. But his point here is assurance. Assurance because the Christian life and growth is not dependent on a whole set of desires that we must have and disciplines that we must undertake, but rather the Christian life is dependent on this great reality that if you're a Christian this morning, God has planted in you a new life, and the only thing that new life knows what to do is grow. And amazingly grow even when times are hard and times are difficult. It does what it knows how to do. Grow and flourish. So Christian living ought to be thought of not as putting on muscle onto sort of dying and decaying flesh, but rather watering and nurturing a new plant inside of us, planted in us by the Spirit. A new life which will eventually, as we'll see this morning, take over every part of our lives. Now, that, that difference might seem subtle to you, but the truth is it, it matters immensely because if we don't get this understanding of what living the Christian life is actually like right, if we don't understand it rightly in our minds, uh, then we not only go about it in a kind of messed up kind of way, but also it, it robs us of assurance, the kind of assurance that God wants us to live our lives with. Now, after that slightly weird and perhaps unnecessarily long introduction, let's have a look at Romans chapter 8, verses 1 to 11. And what I'm going to do first is just walk through the verses in the passage. So keep your eyes down on the text, and let's walk through. And then I'm going to come at the end to think about two uh, really words of assurance for us. So look down, verse 1. Paul starts with this great sentence, No condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But notice why there is no condemnation. Look at the, the following couple of verses. There is no condemnation for or because, verse 2, for the law or the principle of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law or the, the principle of sin and death. In other words, there's no condemnation now because there is freedom, a new principle of free Holy Spirit life in Christ is ours. Then, verse 3, this life is ours for or because God has done what the law, now as in the Old Testament law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. But what, what is it that the law, weakened by the flesh, cannot do for us? Well, yeah, it can't save us, can it? That's true. But more specifically, it cannot make us holy. The Old Testament law could never do that. Giving rules to flesh is like asking Steve to do bodybuilding. It will only make small differences because... Basically, he doesn't want to do it. So now God has met the requirements of the Old Testament law in us. How? Well, back in verse 3, by sending his own son, Jesus, in the likeness of sinful flesh. That's the incarnation. 
and for sin he condemns sin in the flesh, that's the cross, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Listen, this is the point. There is, there is no condemnation in essentially two ways in the book of Romans. Firstly, God in Christ has freed us from the penalty of future judgment. We've seen this lots of times, haven't we, in our studies in the book of Romans. God in Christ has faced on the cross the punishment that we deserve for our sins. He has declared us to be right, justified us. Declared us to be right in the face of God. Justification. But Paul's emphasis here is telling us that there's no condemnation in an additional sense to that. He is saying, not only are we free from future judgment, but we are also free from present slavery. In other words, we are not condemned to live a life that does not please God. Because in Christ by the Spirit, we are made holy. We are free to walk by the Spirit and not by the flesh. Meaning that via the cross, through the Spirit, the holy requirement of the law is being met in us. Think back to last week and where we left the Apostle Paul. He called himself, didn't he, in chapter 7, verse 24, wretched man, wretched man, looking to Christ for deliverance and liberation. And he knew, chapter 7, verse 25, that he would receive that deliverance in Jesus. And now, in chapter 8, he's telling us how that works. So that while at the same time as feeling his wretchedness as a sinner, Paul knows that he's not condemned. Not simply not condemned to future judgment. He knows that too, because Christ has taken the penalty for his sin at the cross. But also he is not condemned to present futility either, because, verse 2, there is now a new life in him, the principle of life by the Spirit. The Spirit of the living God who is now living in Paul because of Christ's cross, which means it's possible, verse 4, to walk by the Spirit and not by the flesh. Just imagine it like this again. Think back to the bodybuilder and the plant. You know, imagine this sort of bodybuilder approach to the Christian life. You, know, you think, I know, I know that Christ died in my place on the cross, bearing my sin, facing my judgment. I know that I've been forgiven. I know that I'm not condemned. But what do I do between today and the day when I, when I meet the Lord Jesus, when I see him face to face? What's my life like now to be, what am I to do? Well, surely I'm to to kind of tame the flesh, to work really hard to be like that person, to build this weak flesh into a spiritual giant. But we do that and we find it's hopeless because the flesh is weak and riddled with sin and can't please God, it can't be holy. So trying to make it holy is like a kind of condemnation to futility, but Paul says, no, there's no condemnation. Why? Because in Christ, through the cross, God not only gives me freedom from condemnation for my sin and judgment, but also in that moment plants in me the life of the Spirit, which will grow and grow and grow. So on the day that we meet him, this new life of the Spirit will flourish into full bloom and be laden down with fruit, way beyond anything that we could have achieved ourselves. Now, you can see that's what Paul means, because if you come down to the passage and look at verse 5, you can see this starts to unravel what he's talking about in the rest of the passage. He says, verse 5, for those who live according to the flesh, bodybuilders, if you like, set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, cultivators of new life, if you like, set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that's set on the flesh is hostile to God. It doesn't submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. 
Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Do you see this? Is it like the sort of two versions of life, aren't there? One by the Spirit and one by the flesh. The point isn't that one's like really concerned about your body and the other's really concerned about the spiritual sort of stuff. No, it's not that, is it? The flesh here in Paul is shorthand for sinful us. This is the old, hostile to God us, the live for ourselves and for our own glory. The stuff that's interested in worshipping ourselves more than God, that's the flesh. It's why in verse 3 Jesus had the likeness of sinful flesh in verse 3, because he shared in our bodies but he did not share in our sin. And the point here is that flesh can never be trained to please God. You can never train flesh to please God because by definition flesh is itself hostile to him. Why is flesh always hostile to God? Well, because it's always thinking about itself. It's always focused in on itself. It will never and can never please God. So instead, the Christian is to set their mind on the spirit, the spirit who has been given to them, and follow him, which leads to life and peace, verse 6. Let me just slow down for a moment. And let me speak to you this morning if you're not a Christian. It's, it's great that you're here. I love the fact that as church here, we have people coming who don't know Christ and don't trust him and want to find out more. It's brilliant that you're here. You're really very, very welcome. What I want to say to you, though, is that the challenge for you is verse 8. Because verse 8 is talking about you when Paul says that without faith in Christ, you cannot, you cannot please God. Those who are in the flesh, that's the contrast of being in Christ, being a Christian, having faith in Christ. Those in the flesh cannot please God. Now, that, that doesn't mean that without faith in Christ, you can't do good things or things which are genuinely praiseworthy. That, that would be absurd. It's not saying that, is it? Rather, the point is that you cannot do anything, good or bad, in a way that pleases God. Because at the center of your being, consciously or subconsciously, this is true of all of us outside of Christ. All of us live, if you like, with our fingers up at God in a way that he cannot ignore and cannot allow. You know, spiritually, we're like the teenager who is graciously washing up at dinner whilst also at the same time shouting obscenities at their parents. Or like the employee who's won a massive contract for the company but is also at the same time siphoning off the money into their own wallet. We're not not pleasing God because everything that we do is evil. We're not pleasing God because everything we do is selfish. It's for us and for our own glory. Something that's so hardwired into us. So it's not just that we don't please God, it's that we Verse 8, cannot. We are bound to his displeasure. We are slaves to it. And everyone is like that. All of our flesh is like that. And so we need to be set free. We need a new holy life planted in us that can please God. If you're not a Christian this morning, you don't need to ask God to help you to be a better version of you. Or ask for his help to live your best life now. You need to ask God to set you free from being a slave to disobedience. And that's a prayer he loves to hear. Back in the passage, Paul says that that freedom, the freedom to please God, belongs to the Christians in Rome. Verse 9, they are in the Spirit, he says. How does he know that they're in the Spirit? Well, because not because they're a special category of spiritual Christians, but because anybody who trusts Christ is a spiritual Christian. All Christians are spiritual. So verse 10, the body is dead. But verse 10 again, the spirit is alive. And verse 
11, if that spirit living in us is the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, well, then we can be confident that we too will be made alive in him when even our mortal bodies will finally put on immortality by the Spirit. Now listen, that's a really kind of quick march through those verses. Let me just try and draw our attention to two big truths in the passage and just uh, think through some of the ways that those might apply for us this morning. The first one is this, freedom. Freedom. I think it's taken a long time for me to really get a grip of what's going on here. I think as... As evangelicals, we can be rightly concerned, can't we, about not mixing up being saved with being holy. We're really concerned, aren't we, to keep those things apart. We're really concerned because we know that the gospel is is about what Christ has done to save us, not about the life that we live. We're we're concerned to separate those two things because we know that it's, it's wrong to say, and it's the kind of theology of the world, isn't it, that says, if you're a good person, God will love you and save you. That's not the gospel, is it? Actually, we need Christ to do good works on our behalf, dying on the cross for our sin, for us to be saved. But I wonder sometimes, in in separating our uh, salvation from our holiness, that we actually treat these things as if they're completely disconnected realities. As if Jesus saves us from future judgment, and then we're to be left on our own to get busy being holy by ourselves. I'm sure that's how I've lived my Christian life for years. And wonder why it's so frustrating and why we lack any assurance altogether. But Romans 8 blows that out of the water because we're being told that in Christ, not only are we saved from wrath and judgment to come, but we're also made holy in the present. You know, to use the theological language, we are one at the same time both justified by Christ and also sanctified by him. So yes, I know we talk about sanctification being the the gradual process of growing in holiness as a Christian, being conformed to the image of his son, as he puts it in verse 29 of our passage this morning of chapter 8. But sanctification is also, in a very important sense, already finished and completed in Christ. So that if you're a Christian this morning, you are both justified and saved from future judgment, but you are also sanctified and holy in God's presence. Now, that doesn't mean that you are perfect. Of course it doesn't mean that, does it? Rather, it means that the Christian life and growth is not about making your old flesh look better and better and better, but it's about allowing this new holy life planted in you to grow and to flourish and to take over. It's kind of like ivy growing up a house that gradually kind of works its way into every corner of the building, every joint. So that, yes, I am the wretched man of Romans chapter 7 who struggles with sin and fails. And boy, do I feel that at times. But also, at the same time, I'm the possessor of a new Holy Spirit, holy life, free to please God. And my great confidence comes that God looks at me today in Christ and loves me, not only because he sees me covered in Christ's righteousness, but he also sees in me this unstoppable life of the Spirit, growing and flourishing into something that pleases him. I'm alive. I was dead, I'm alive. So are you if you're a Christian this morning. It means I can walk by the Spirit. You can walk by the Spirit. You can follow the Spirit. You can keep in step with the Spirit. You can set your mind on the things of the Spirit, living in a way that pleases him. This new life grows and delights the God who gave it. If you're a Christian this morning, this is true of you. You know, that, that this morning God looks at you Amidst all of your struggles, all of your battles with sin, 
all your flops and failures in the Christian life, you know, he looks at you and he smiles at you because you're holy in Christ. And by the Spirit, he sees you growing in a new life that he's given you. So if, as a Christian this morning, you're feeling just a bit desperate about the state of your Christian life, do you know what? You can be sure that God is a lot more positive about it than you are. Not because he believes in you, or because he sees strengths that you've not yet noticed yourself, but because he's planted in you a new life which can't be stopped. And this new life that he's planted in you is not kind of a weak, temperamental plant. You know, Vanessa and I used to have an allotment, and growing stuff there was challenging for us. We didn't seem to be very good at it necessarily. But the, you go on Sudley Field or Holt Field, the council dug it up, right? And then they threw grass seed on the mud, and everyone was trampling on it. The birds were kind of nosing around it. I thought, that grass is never going to grow. I don't know what that grass seed was, but it grew. Right? It's just incredible, it grew. And that's like what God is doing in us. He has planted in us, not a temperamental seed, actually a seed of new life which grows even in the winter of suffering. It seems like even the hostility of sickness is just the right conditions for that plant to grow. There's no imperative in our verses this morning. There's no, like, go away and do this, is there? Instead, we're instructed to set our minds on the Spirit, to think about the Christian life this way. In next week's passage, the instruction is to put to death the flesh and to be led by the Spirit. It's the old Christian words of mortification, putting to death, and vivification, giving life, killing and enlivening, starving the flesh and tending the Spirit. And that's how we're to think about the Christian life. We're not bodybuilders showing off our spiritual muscles to one another in a sort of bizarre competition about who can be more holy than the other. We, we have holiness planted into us by the Spirit. You can't get more holy than the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, can you? What we're to do, we're to be gardeners. And the first step to being a good gardener is what? Realizing that's what you are. Realizing that's what you are. Tending to this new life that you've been given in Christ by the Spirit. That's the first thing, freedom. Finally, resurrection. Uh, this is uh, the end of this morning's passage, and I want us to leave sort of pondering on this. You see, our experience of life by the Spirit is sort of tantalizingly limited, isn't it? We live on Christmas Eve waiting for Christmas Day. We have the promise of what's to come, but not yet the full reality. But Paul is at pains to point out that the Spirit who we've been given is the same Spirit who, verse 11, raised Jesus from the dead. Do you see that? The Spirit of him who raised Christ from the dead. And the reason that's important, because it means that God cannot but raise our mortal bodies through the same Spirit who now dwells in us. Because that's what the, that's what the Spirit does. The Spirit is, by definition, a resurrection Spirit. And if you want evidence of that, go look at the empty tomb of Jesus. Think about how this works. As you, as you get older, you feel yourself, don't you, withering away bit by bit. That sounds very dramatic, doesn't it? But you know what I mean. We feel a sort of increasing weakness physically. And if Romans 7 is right, and I think Romans 7 is right, and we were looking at it last week, we also, also feel a kind of growing weakness of our sinfulness, don't we? This battle with sin. And it's easy, isn't it, for us to just think, well, do you know what? I am, I am withering away. I, I'm struggling with sin. Physically, I'm withering away. What, what a miserable life I have. I feel worse and worse about my godliness. 
I feel weaker and weaker physically every day. But Paul says to us this morning, doesn't he? And this is brilliant. You know, Christian, this morning, in your withering away body and in your battle with sin, God has planted in you a new life by the Spirit in Christ. A new life. A life that grows even in the mud and the muck of life. So much so that as your body continues to fail, this life continues to grow. Even when you physically die, this life will grow and flourish. Even swallowing up your mortal flesh in life itself, giving you new physical life. In other words, this morning, if you're a Christian and you feel wretched, like we were talking about last week, if you feel getting older and weaker, what we need to remember is that there is a time coming when we will be consumed by life. That actually, although we're weakening, this spirit of Christ is growing and flourishing and will consume all our weakness with resurrection life. You guys look miserable, but hey, that's brilliant news, right? Imagine. There is a day, we used to the idea there's a day when we will die. There is a day when we will be swallowed up by life. Imagine. And that though our body is weakening, this spirit of Christ is growing and flourishing and will consume all of our weakness with resurrection life. Death giving way to life. Sin giving way to full and free holiness. Decay giving way to resurrection. Mortality giving way to immortality. Why? Well, because God in Christ by the Spirit has planted in us an unstoppable life. And you don't build it, you tend it. You tend it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for what you have done for us in Christ by the Spirit. Thank you that you have given us a new life. Life in the Spirit, a new life which pleases you, which longs to live for your glory. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that you might help us to set our minds on the Spirit, to put to death the old flesh, and to tend and nurture this new life that you've given us. We pray, please, that we might do that not only for your glory, which we long, Lord, for your glory, But we pray we might do it for our own good and our own assurance as well. That you might help us to remember what you've done for us and to live our Christian lives with joyful confidence, knowing that you have done something unstoppably brilliant in us. Not because we deserved it, but because you loved us. Because you're a God of love. So we thank you. In Jesus' name. Amen.